I'm Justin Cox. This is And The Pitch. It's April 16th, 2004, and the Dodgers are playing the Giants in San Francisco. It's the bottom of the ninth inning with one out, and the pitcher is Eric Gagne, fresh off 55 saves and a Cy Young. He's protecting a 3-0 lead against Barry Bonds. You know who Barry Bonds is. Best player on the planet at this time, and maybe ever. It's a 2-2 count, and the Giants have a runner on first. Gagne just threw a 101-mile-per-hour fastball that Bonds somehow pulled deep into the San Francisco Bay, but just foul. Gagne settles in and puts his grip on another fastball. Grant Brisby writes about the Giants and Major League Baseball for The Athletic and also hosts their Baseball Barista podcast with Hunter Pence. Grant, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. How are you doing? Very good. And you were you were one person I specifically wanted to talk to, and I thought about this at bat, and I'm... Oh, I'm excited to talk. I'm always excited to talk about it. You catch me at a bus stop and ask me to talk about it, and I'll talk about it. <laughs> uh, and before we get there, I had never heard Release the Beast, but that was a like an electrifying treat and very good walk-up music. <laughs> well, well, thank you. Yeah, I have a, a Spotify playlist that is titled Perfect Songs, and it has something from all over the map. But to get on my hallowed Perfect Songs list, it's got to be a perfect song. So that, that I think qualifies for me. So welcome. The first thing I want to do, I think, because something I think is beautiful about this at bat is it's a game in mid-April that the Giants don't even end up winning. Mm-hmm. And yet... And yet, like, who remembers who it, it it's kind of why it's awesome. Like it. But so and I think with that, I can remember exactly where I was, which I, if I can remember exactly where I was watching this in mid-April, it, it kind of like illustrates who these guys were and how much they mattered at this specific moment. Do you remember where you were? I do. I was uh, I was in Ashland, Oregon in my apartment and I was just watching this game and thinking the same thing that everyone else is thinking, like, come on, you know, come at them. Let, let's see. You've got the three run lead. And apparently they had worked it out beforehand that this was the, the game and uh, <laughs> it lived up to it. It totally did. Yeah. I was sitting in a dorm room in CSU Monterey Bay and mm. um, like the context is like, so Bonds is like three seasons removed from the 73 homers. Gagne is one is one removed from the Cy Young, the 55 saves. But Bonds is getting walked like crazy, right? Like you can argue that this year, 2004, what he goes on to do is like almost more mind-blowing statistically than the 73 home run season, right? Yeah, it was probably his best overall offensive year. Um, and that's you know saying a lot because he hit 73 freaking home runs in 2001. But in this year, he ends up hitting 362. Uh, he, he walks 232 times. He gets intentionally walked 120 times. Like he got walked 61 times intentionally the year before. They intentionally walked him twice as much. Major League Baseball is just done. They were done with him. Like, forget it. You know, we're just going to give him give him first base every single time. Why would you not? And and I can remember thinking the same thing. Like I've never, I have a pretty good understanding of baseball and played it and everything, but I'm not like, a, there are people who know way more than me on all the analytics and stats and on like sort of technical, like swing motion and pitching and everything. I, all I know is at that time period in my life when I would watch the games and Barry Bonds would come up, I just like on a pure gut physical level would see him standing there and think, where do you throw it? Like what you can't, you can't do anything. 
Like I even want them to walk him. And that's like antithetical to what you would want your team to do if you're rooting for anything exciting to happen. It's as close to technical perfection as you'll ever see from a hitter. Um, And it is, you can go with baseball today. You can take a reliever today, put him back in 2004, and that reliever has a a high likelihood of dominating just by virtue of having access to the modern uh, data science, having access to the biomechanical advances that have been made in the last 20 years. You take a, a middle reliever from this era, put him back in 2004, and you're going to have a dominant reliever. Same thing with hitters, and it goes in reverse. If you take a hitter from 2004, you plop him into today's game, Odds are he's not going to be as good. He's not going to be as close. The exceptions were Bonds. I think you could take Bonds from 2004, plop him in today, and he's just as good, um, close to it. And Gagne. And Gagne was a reliever. He was a freak back then. He would still be something of a freak today. Like his game plays. There are more pitchers who are Gagne adjacent today as far as like stuff, what they offer, command. But you'd put Gagne from 2004 on a roster in 2021, he still freaking dominates. And that you can't say that about players from that era. Like those were the two guys. Yeah, when you watch, when you watch back on YouTube and see him hitting, like let's let's go. Oh, we'll get to this at bat and get to ultimately to the to the pitch in a second. But when you're watching him hit 100 and 101 and stuff, I mean, it's still kind of exciting and crazy when that it's it's exciting now when that happens, but it happens more, you know? Like right. if you place yourself you have to like deliberately go out of your way to place yourself back in 2004 with this guy throwing several fastballs in a row and hitting triple digits over and over. And then just, I don't know, the the theater with which it plays out is something. It is. So Gagne struck out 137 batters in 82 innings. That's a strikeout uh, per nine innings mark of 15, which would be bonkers today. It was like levels above bonkers in 2003 when he won the Cy Young. He he had a season because okay, so he's throwing a hundred with that wipeout changeup, and then oh yeah, he mixes in he can flop in a, a high 60s curveball when he wants to. But he he had command. He could go in, he can go out, he could go up, go down. He was like a per. He was. The Barry Bonds of pitching, he just didn't do it for a couple decades. But in that moment, he was the Barry Bonds of relief pitching. He was just as dominant as a relief pitcher could be. Yeah, it was a tight but extremely crazy window. And and add to that, like this doesn't necessarily matter for the like the the pitching itself. But he in that tight window was iconic, too, with the the introductory introductory music in the ninth inning and stuff and just. Gagne was a celebrity for like three years in like a very real way. And it was intimidating. And I think that's what that sets the table for this at bat. Absolutely. And and there's, you know, there's layers upon layers to it because he's the Dodgers guy. Not only is he the Dodgers guy, but he won the Cy Young the year before over Jason Schmidt, who was the Giants guy. Mm. And Jason Schmidt was, uh, you know, if you're going by war, you're going by the advanced statistics, he was probably deserving of that Cy Young. At the same time, if you're going to lose it to a reliever, you're going to lose it to a reliever who had one of the greatest relief seasons in history. And uh, so there was like a lot underneath it, too. It was Giants, Dodgers. It was awards. It was all that stuff. I can't I can't believe the that Jason Schmidt thing, because 
how, how many years away at this point are we from the Giants boondoggling the Dodgers into taking his contract? Because <laughs> that's not my that's not my memory of Jason Smith Schmidt. But as you remind me, yeah, he was incredible. He was great. Yeah, 2003 was one of the best seasons in uh, best starting pitching seasons in Giants history. And when you think about Lincecum and Kane and Bumgarner, uh, and you know, m- much less like Marischal and, and stuff like that, it says a lot to say, yeah, that one season, 2003, was one of the greatest seasons a Giants fan will ever watch from a starting pitcher. Yeah. All right. So let's go. We we I'm just gonna kind of bomb through these pitches and get to the the last two. So first pitch is a hard foul down first baseline. Next pitch is inside corner. It says 99 miles per hour on TV, but there's a lot of talk about the radar gun in the stadium was showing a lot of these pitches up in triple digits. <laughs> then he hits him with a 73 mile per hour breaking ball. And I, and well, there's a story behind all this that we'll get to after, after this, but then comes with a fastball inside and he takes that. And that's the first time that Kruko and Kuiper who are like, I should say like, I'm, I'm a Dodger fan. And in the, in the, in the period of bonds and I'm, and I lived in Northern California. So it was hard. I understand these guys are great and beloved, but in that moment, like the conditions were such that they drove me insane. Like (laughs) they, because they are, they are, I mean, I think they're very talented and they're great, but they are, they have a certain sort of Homer, Homer streak to them, you know? Absolutely. And and they'll they'll tell someone to grab some pine meat and stuff, and it's like, <laughs> and and so. But either way, they in this at bat on on the YouTube video, they are excellent. They are they are like they, it's basically a steady crescendo of them realizing like what we're watching right now is amazing. Oh no, that is exactly you know they are. I don't think that they would uh, disagree with the Homer characterization. They're fair. I think they were always fair to, yep. uh, they would pump up the Giants when they were up. If a Giants player screwed up, they would uh, make sure to, to note it. If an opposing player would uh, do something amazing, they were quick to note that. But at the same time, they were very invested with uh, their job as to uh, heighten the theater of Giants baseball specifically. And, and you know, Giants fans obviously love, love them for that. Uh, they were very good at heightening, you know, the theater of that at bat for sure. Yeah, and so that that first time, that one when he takes two two inside, is the first time he, that they're actively telling us like we're in triple digits. This is wow. This is this is kind of interesting. I think the quote is this is a pretty good matchup. And then the other one says, I'm digging it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then and then he foul, bonds fouls a ball back kind of directly behind him. And then we get the 101 mile per hour pitch that Bonds manages to pull 10, 20 feet foul deep into McCovey Cove. And that's sort of like, we've all, we watched Barry Bonds like hit so many balls into that water and the, the speed of that pitch that he pulled it, it just was sort of like, even if what happens next didn't happen, it was like already kind of like these, this is two beasts facing off and I love it. That is the pitch that makes me like, so when I'm saying that you can plop Gagne into today's modern game and you can plop Bonds into today's modern game, that's the pitch that makes me think that because who can throw a pitch like that in 2021 baseball? You can like count on, you know, two hands, the pitchers who can come in with a 101 mile power fastball and uh, do it because he wants to do it because he's trying to. That's where he wanted that pitch to be. And then how many batters 
can pull it foul <laughs> 500 feet, you know, be early on a 101 mile per hour fastball. Like, oh, I should have slowed my swing down for that one. It's not many, you know, it's it's that's, again, a very, very short list. And this was in 2004. It's like they hopped out of a time machine like they were. That's like Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla stuff. It's just it's it was so mind blowing back in 2004. It would still be mind blowing today, just in a very different way. That's the pitch that makes me think that. Totally. Before we get to the pitch that's about to happen, he uh, there's a story apparently that like back in on on some international trip to Japan that that Bonds had a conversation with Gagne about like whether he he if they were to face off like what he could do and kind of had like a I don't know I, I'll be curious to talk to you about like Bonds's personality and whatnot but like he had the stature and authority and maybe kind of personality to say <laughs> he tells Eric Gagne if we ever face each other. All, just throw me all fastballs no 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 off-speed pitches he's like what and then they they kind of negotiate a all right you can throw one so he threw he cashed the one so he's he, he's he's honoring this basically which is completely insane to the point that i maybe even wonder if it's like kind of made up lore i prefer to think it's not um and it kind of doesn't sound like it is because he literally does just throw fastballs like by the time he gets i think pedro feliz or someone up next it's almost all breaking balls and so he throws him another 100 mile per hour fastball. And what happens, Grant? It is uh, a long, deep drive into center field. And it, yeah, it is. It, and I, I do think that that story has teeth because uh, it comes from two different sources. I've heard it uh, Gagne tell the story where Bonds gives him permission to throw exactly one off speed pitch, but it can't be the changeup. It's got to be the curveball. And he goes, OK, I've got one card to play. And I've heard Bonds tell the story where there was no carve out for the one off speed pitch. It, it should have been all fastballs. <laughs> and he's thinking, oh, come on, man. Um, so there's there's that discrepancy. But it really does seem like there's a gentleman's agreement. And yeah, that's how good they were. They were, you know, Gagne's not thinking, well, what happens if I give up this home run and I can't get the next two guys out? He's like, well, I'm clearly going to get the next two guys out. Uh, so why wouldn't I, you know, just challenge him with fastballs? Let's see what happens. Uh, it, it was it was remarkable. The time before that, that he faced Barry Bonds, uh, he walked him. He got to, I think it was a seven pitch at bat. It was the bottom of the 11th. Bond was, Bonds was leading off an inning and he walked Bonds, took him to a full count. Uh, but still, uh, Bonds walked. Bonds ended up coming around to score the winning run on a single. And so that was the last time they they had faced. And that was in 2003. That was the, the Gagne uh, peak. And so they still had this gentleman's agreement. Like, if I come up and there's a two-run, three-run lead, you're going to challenge me on the fastballs. And uh, great swing. I mean, you know, drives it to, to deep center field. It was kind of a no-doubter. I mean, for Oracle Park or AT&T Park or Pac Bell Park, whatever it was back then, <laughs> um, it was like you knew. You kind of knew that it wasn't going to be contained. When Bonds hit him, usually they weren't uh, ambiguous. Usually it was like, oh, yeah, he got it. And that's what he did. He just drove it to, to dead center off a 100-mile-per-hour fastball. It was. It's so, so good. And so I think I think what he they, he was three for fifteen off him with two singles and one double before that. So he hadn't hit a home run off him before. And the Dodgers put on a an extra run the previous inning, right? Which created the situation where if Bonds hits that home run, the Dodgers are still winning and they do continue to win. Do you think if it's still two nothing that they they that at bat plays out the way it does with a guy on base? 
No, absolutely not. And you can tell because uh, the next two times that Bonds came up against Gagne, it was not that situation. He came up, uh, I think, a week later, and it was tied in the top of the ninth and uh, intentional walk. You know, Gagne just said, no, I'm not dealing with this. Uh, I'm going to put Bonds on with two outs. Uh, And then in September of that year, the Giants were down by a run and bonds comes up with two outs and a runner on first and no, 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 he's going to intentionally walk him. You know, you're not going to face bonds with a, you know, even if you push the winning run or the tying run in a scoring position, put the winning run on base. Like, no, you're not going to, you're not going to do that. You're not um, going to take that chance. So we saw it play out where, you know, that situation came up and Gagne's like, yeah, there's a time for machismo and then there's a time to be smart and prudent. And he took the smart and prudent after that. God, I love that. That's such, such beautiful baseball stuff. I mean, you need, you need a a sport that has um, 162 games to it and everything to, to kind of be able to do that. You can't do the equivalent of that in like a 16 game football season. Absolutely. And it's also uh, just the very nature of baseball, the the one on one sort of matchup. You can have a a situation in basketball where you've got a superstar and you say clear out of side, you know, I'm going to go out this guy one on one and you'll you'll get that sort of stuff in basketball. But it's still just like a a real brief hiccup of a much longer game, whereas baseball you're only going to get, you know, four of these matchups that year between Bonds and Gagne. Two of them are going to be intentional walks. This is, there's a lot just that builds up to it. There's months of speculation. There's an entire offseason to get to that April. You have Bonds, the MVP, Gagne, the Cy Young. And if you could have pitched, or if you could have picked a matchup that you would have watched in December, January, just if you could have made one up in your mind, it would have looked just like that. So it was the anticipation, like baseball can be, a progressive jackpot where you're constantly putting these quarters in for, for nothing, for nothing. It's a slow game. It's a slow game. And then you hit that progressive jackpot and it's, it's all worthwhile. That's well put. The story of this at bat and these players and this kind of moment in baseball, it's, it would be irresponsible to talk about it without talking about like the general time period and the, Mm -hmm. like what defined the time period. And I'm going to use my, my entry point to that will be whatever person illegally uploaded this to YouTube, like five years ago, captioned it as one of the greatest matchups of the steroid era. <laughs> and so that's, yeah. that's my entry point to it. Um, uh, Bonds, the conversation around him is like clear. There's been, there's people, people talk about McGuire, Sosa, Bonds and, and Clemens and all that about steroids. That's, that's ready and clear. Gagne was named in the Mitchell report. I, I'm tr- I should think about what this is as a question, but I don't know, thinking about this moment, but knowing it's a part of that area, part of that era, how do you how do you digest and process that? What's your thoughts on that? That era happened, and it was for Giants fans. It was a really fun era, and I think Giants fans or are in general going to have a much different opinion about that era because, look, in 1998, I've written thousands of words on this. Baseball was set up to let Maguire and Sosa do their thing. And Maguire and Sosa were, were heralded for it. They were uh, feted for it. Like this was, they saved baseball and it, it was just only so natural for someone like Bonds to go, I could do that. 
I could yeah. do, you know, you're telling me like less recovery time that uh, as I get older, that my body is not beaten down by a 162 game season. Yeah. You let me do that. And, and I'll, I'll show them. And it was almost like, you know, if you remember that season where there was a reporter who found uh, a jar of something in McGuire's locker and he wrote about it and the scandal was more, Hey, why are you writing about that? Come on, yeah. let us have some fun. Like the reporter was excoriated. Later in retrospect, he was he was honored more by his peers. Uh, but at the time, it was like, oh, come on. Like even Murray Chass, who was like the, the great steroid scold of his era when it came to Hall of Fame voting, he wrote a column like, oh, come on, that's much ado about nothing. Let them take their supplements. And you knew that it was... Yes, supplements, wink, wink. But you also just enjoyed the theater and the spectacle of these guys being gigantic and huge and saving baseball and, and all that. Um, so it, as a Giants fan who who received a lot of the benefits from that, who got to watch the single season home run chase, who would eventually get to watch the the Hank Aaron chase, like it was just a lot of endorphins that bonds gave me like i didn't get any of the side effects um but i got like all these chemicals going to my brain they were firing off for like a decade a decade plus it was awesome um so there's no guilt on my end because it was sort of like everyone was doing it these two guys in particular were certainly doing it and it turned them into like it was like Rocky four, except it was uh, ivan drago against ivan drago it was great you know you got to see them punch each other and that's exactly what you wanted that's exactly what that is. Yeah, and I, I actually want to make sure I'm not even phrasing that as like, would you do feel guilt liking this? Basically, the way you describe that is, is I felt that way. Like when I watched the 98 thing, I loved it. And I can remember either that following season or like the all-star break of that season or something, seeing like a sit-down interview with Barry Bonds. He's sitting out in the field. I don't remember if it was local or national or what. And someone asks him who the best baseball player in the world is. And you're kind of waiting to, for him to like, I think they frame it almost as a uh, Maguire or Sosa type conversation because that's what that season was. Um, this is all my like 14-year-old memory, by the way. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's in my memory and I'm I'm uh, leaking it out right now. But they, he says Barry Bonds. Like he answers that it's him. And I remember being there like, fuck you, Barry Bonds. Like how <laughs> dare you? And, and just thinking like, and that's so Barry Bonds of an answer. And I, I remember thinking like, I mean, I was everything set up for me, a Dodger fan living in Northern California <laughs> in that moment to just not like that. But it was like it took without me acknowledging it, it took me two years to realize, like, that guy was definitely right about that. <laughs> and then it took me probably another seven, eight, nine, ten years to be like, that guy was really right about that and <laughs> probably doing exactly that, that processing that you were talking about, about like. That looks fun. I'm going to go do that. And Jesus Christ, he went and did that. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly, you're seeing that stuff with the, the sticky stuff today where you have pitchers who say, look, if they're not going to check and you've got this spider tag, uh, let me take a whack at it. Like, let me, let me give this stuff a whirl. Like, wow, this stuff is great. Ah, good, good stuff. Um, so it's, it's that same sort of vibe. And when it comes to the Mitchell report era and the Balco stuff, uh, giants fans, and I, uh, you know, they're not monolithic, but I think I can speak for a lot of them when, we just cared a whole lot less. It was more just one more thing to be like us against the world and like, oh yeah, you don't like that? Well, tough. You know, we got this guy and he's juiced up yeah. and it's outstanding. I um, can confirm that that's how you guys were. <laughs> I can yeah. very much confirm. 
it's just you know it's it's, it's sports are you know, tribal and it's yeah. it's it's uh, illogical a lot of the time and uh, you'll get some of the the people who are very very just like pro bonds and pro giants they would be the loudest when it came to the astros or or they would be the loudest when it comes to the sticky stuff like oh no how dare you you know it's when yeah. it's your guy it's your guy it's in <laughs> sports and i guess now politics it's uh yeah you know every, everything flies it's fun let us enjoy it I think we're at a point, I don't know about in baseball media and stuff. I'd be curious what you think, but I think we're at a point where like they were right in just being purely excited in that moment. Like why do they, because they have the guy who is the best baseball player. Of course you're going to be the most excited. He's playing amazingly. And like when I say that thing earlier about him answering who the best baseball player in the world is, you could possibly look at his stats from 1998, 99 and stuff. And even before he kind of jumps on and becomes a demigod, still say he actually was better than Sammy Sosa. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And there are layers within the Giants Bonds relationship, uh, you know, not just going back to his dad and his his godfather, Willie Mays. I mean, that's bananas in its own right. Yeah. Uh, but then you're talking about 1992. The Giants are gone. The Giants are it's signed. It's there's a tearful goodbye, a candlestick, no more baseball in San Francisco. And then it's like you blink and oh, they're back. Oh, they have the best player in baseball now. They brought him home. And then it, it that starts building. And then it's we've moved from the crappiest dungeon in baseball to like this gorgeous new waterfront ballpark that's going to be around for a hundred years at least. And in the middle of it, that guy who was there the season that they weren't in Florida, well, he's still around and now he's the best player in baseball. He's breaking records. He's winning pennants. And it was like, you couldn't just extract your feelings from this and and look at it like, well, from a workplace ethics standpoint, uh, what he's doing is taking a physical risk that his uh, peers should not be forced (laughs) to take. It's like, no, you're just like, ah, this is awesome. Like, this is so much fun. And we, none of it was guaranteed. It was the Tampa Giants. They were going to play in a dome. Maybe we would be fighting for a, an expansion team at some point or, or you know, trying to get the, the Expos to move here or something like that. So it's just there's so many layers that it builds on. And it, there's so many reasons why San Francisco fans were just like, yeah, yeah Barry Bonds is ours. You don't like it. Go, go screw yourself. And that was the attitude at the time. The, the phrase Tampa Bay Giants is extremely depressing. It is. <laughs> and I, I, and like, I have to say, like I, as someone who as a teenager moved from Southern California to Northern California, at this point, I'd say I've probably seen, I don't live there now, but I, I've probably seen more games at, at that stadium um, than I've, than I'd have at Dodger stadium. And that place is incredible. And, and that place, <laughs> the idea of him playing all those years in that place with that water out there that's just it perfect. It was. And it was funny because when you're looking before the ballpark opens and all you have are the blueprints, the diagrams, the outfield dimensions, you are hearing like, oh, they set this up so Bonds could break records. Oh, it's going to be such a hitter's ballpark. Oh, look how it tailored it is for his left-handed swing down the line. I held that opinion without any research or thought about it. Well, I think a lot of people did. And then you get to opening day, the first uh, home opener at, at Pac Bell Park, and Kevin Elster hits three home runs. And you're thinking, bandbox, you know, this is just going to keep going. And only with the benefit of hindsight are you realizing – Oh my God, not only was he doing this, but he was doing it in what is one of the historically most difficult ballparks for a left-handed batter to hit ever. 
Like it's it's more difficult for a left-handed batter than almost any other ballpark in history. And that like it that adds to it. Totally does. So have you have you ever heard the stat? This kind of gets to the this is still in the context of the steroid stuff and um just just greatness and even beyond that. You ever hear the stat about like Wayne Gretzky, even if you took away all his goals, he still has the most points in the NHL? Right. Yes. Yes. Like, like that's, that's, you kind of can't even fathom it. It, It's like just completely ridiculous. Right. Right. And so my path, this kind of involves you a little bit. And part of the reason I want I was excited to talk to you. I followed baseball intensely. I read newspaper box scores as a kid without even knowing like why, like, like obsessed with the idea that like Tony Gwynn was like batting close to 400 every year without, why do I care? You know, but I followed that stuff intensely and became a baseball fan that way. And then, but I'm a millennial who like kind of acclimated to the internet and then eventually was like, like a lot of people didn't necessarily have a need for sports center or a daily game repack, or, uh, like recap or something. And I found myself in some period in like the late two thousands to like early, early aughts, mid aughts, kind of like not knowing what my hat, like not really reading about baseball the way I always did. Cause like, why am I going to just read the recap that I don't need that, you know? And then I found, so that stat, that Wayne Gretzky stat I'm talking about, I found a series of writers. One was um, Mike Sosha's tragic illness, the yes. site, the Mike Petriello site. I loved it. That, that was really like the first one because I was a Dodgers fan. And I was like, wait, you can, you can write about this this way. This is awesome. And then um, you, which was a Giants, you're, you're a Giants writer, but I like found it funny and interesting. And I think you wrote occasionally not about the Giants. And then I found this article that there was like a Cespedes family barbecue blog post that was just like Giants, uh, Barry Bonds facts. <laughs> and, and it was like 25 facts that were a, the equivalent of that Gretzky stat I just gave. They were, and they were like involved pre-steroid st- stats and they involved like um, from from 2001 to 2004, he reached base in 573 of 539 games. That's 94% of them. He leads leads the majors in intentional walks, and the next highest player is Pujols, and he has more than double that. And that's Albert Pujols. These are unthinkable, and it doesn't even matter. Like st- steroids were part of that area. They weren't just, the era. They weren't just part of Barry Bonds. Barry Bonds did all that, and he did a lot of it before taking steroids. The Cespedes guys are, are really good at unearthing these goofy stats because sometimes you just do go to the Barry Bonds uh, baseball reference page and just stare at it. Um, there's there's a part uh, or a section where you can like transform his numbers into 2000 Coors Field numbers. And mm-hmm. sometimes I just stare at that, you know, like oh his career God. numbers. If he played every season in 2000 uh, Coors Field, it's just it's it's like a Disneyland of baseball reference pages. I consider you among them in in kind of approach to sports writing, did you, I don't know, did you, how did you know you can sort of enter into writing about baseball in that way, in a way that I think is smart, but, but a little, a little weird and coming at it from a, an angle that feels like, I don't know, it, it landed with me basically. I, the, the big difference, and it wasn't intentional, it's not as if I saw that there was a, a gap I could fill or that, oh, here's the opening, it, but it just naturally is this moment where you, you instinctively know that everyone's got the internet. Everyone can get the game day feed on their phones if they're not watching it. Uh, but also you can watch it however you want. You can watch it on your computer. Uh, you have games, you have access to games, every single pitch. So when I'm writing, 
I'm not beholden to the idea of, well, here's the scene in the first inning. You had a, you know, a three, two count. Like you, you saw it. Like, I'm just assuming you saw it. If you're reading this, we all watch it together. And now I'm going to talk about it in a larger context. I'm going to be able to be goofy. I'm going to reference something that happened in the fifth inning without having to describe like, well, it was a blustery day out there, gentlemen. You know, it's, <laughs> it's like, it's, I, I, I just assume like you watched it. So let's talk about it. And that was a, just a different approach to sports writing, not that I was doing, just that everyone was sort of doing. It wasn't just me who is assuming that their reader had had watched the game. It was everyone. It was Jeff Sullivan. It was uh, just the blogs, you know, and, and you could have, there was no uh, cost for entry. You just put something on Blogspot. You just had it up. And that's where, that is where you got to talk about the game that everyone else saw and there was no pressure, no expectations. No one's, I'm not thinking that this is going to be like hanging in Cooper sound one day. It's just an idiot talking about a baseball game. Um, and so that kind of freedom is, you know, in the eighties, you didn't have idiots talking about baseball games with an audience. You had them talking about it to each other, but now you had the internet and you had the ability to say, everyone's on the same page. Let's just, you know, make jokes and, and, and then analyze this stuff. I tried to I tried to stalk your LinkedIn to try and like see when you started reporting and stuff like that, but it's <laughs> it's it's a uh, it's it's just the athletic. You have a, a nice nice quiet LinkedIn page. I uh, just set that LinkedIn page up to write a feature about Mother's Cookies baseball cards. Like I didn't even have a LinkedIn page. I just needed it in order to try and dig down to see who was responsible for the Mother's Cookies card. So yeah, I've never really used it other than for that one article. Have you have you noticed a spike in awful dumb emails since you said <laughs> got a LinkedIn page? Because they're horrendous. Yeah, I mean, I have gotten a couple, but I, in general, I am very good at ignoring all emails. So, um, as you know, because you had to kind of come and email me a couple months later, be like, "Hey, did you see this?" And the answer is no. I never see any email. I'm surprised I saw this one. I'm proud of myself. Uh, I am proud of you. That sounds like a good life, actually. Um, the so did you, you, you end up at SB Nation, were you just blogging on your own blog spot prior to that? Yeah, I was uh, blogging, it was called Waiting for Boof. Uh, I started in the 2002 off season and I just, I was doing my thing. SB Nation reached out and they said, well, we've got, uh, this guy is backing us. This guy who has a very successful political blog is, is you know, a co-founder. And I thought, well... I don't, I was almost about to quit blogging. I was just about like, oh, you know, what am I doing? I gotta, you know, I can't get up to write every week. I just, it wasn't, it wasn't jiving with me, but I was like, all right, you know what? Maybe if I have to write for someone else, maybe if I'm contracted, I will actually write more. And that's exactly what happened. So I went from my blog to SB Nation, their first contract, I think I had to post three times a week. And to me, that was like, oh, you know, it's tripling my workload. Um, and it's what I needed. I needed to have someone expect X number of words. And that's what I did. What year is this? Uh, that site went live in 2005. So January, 2005 is, you know, the giants are just about to start to be lousy. Yeah. And... You're entering the meek, meek yes. years. You're going to get paid off in like five years, but. It was, and it added to the tone. Like all of a sudden I was the voice of discontent and it resonated, I think with a lot of fans who uh, enjoyed what the Giants did from 1997 through 2004. But at the same time, they expected at least one lousy championship and not to have their heart 
broken and thrown into uh, uh, Cuisinart time and time again. And when it all fell apart, it was it was just like this icky, nasty feeling. And you looked at all of the different ways they screwed up and the what ifs and the what should have beens and they should have gone for it here and they should have signed Vladimir Guerrero there. Uh, and there was a bitterness that that was uh, hard for me to avoid as a disgruntled Giants fan. But I think in general, the Giants fans they come, they have like a DNA of, they don't win. They don't win championships. They lose in the most heartbreaking fashion. They would, they would lose to, you know, Candy Maldonado making a, an ill-advised slide, or they would lose, you know, there'd be an earthquake in the freaking world series, or they would lose, uh, there'd be Scott Spezio. You can't blame the earthquake. No, but it's like, there's always just something. It's Bobby Richardson, (laughs) you know, being right there when Willie McCovey lined that, that final out of the 62 world series, it was just baked into it's never going to happen for you. And the Cubs are going to get all the sympathy and the Red Sox are going to get all the sympathy, but you, you just have to sit there and shut up because Giants fans are are never going to feel happiness. And that was wrong. God was, God was saving it all up to let you, to bless (laughs) you to become the most annoying people in the world for like, and, and specifically on even years. It wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't bad. I'll tell you that much. It wasn't bad. But but so, yeah, no, it goes, I, I I have to say like, this is me speaking like bitterly. I, 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 it's amazing what they did. And I lived in San Francisco in 2010, working a like kind of early job, like in the great recession and uh, mm-hmm. watched them win, watched flags all over the place. Saw my first world series parade. It was a giants parade. <laughs> None of that's great, but it was amazing. Um, what, uh, which, all right, let me see. I, I want to try and say this in the most annoying way possible. Yes. What is which experience is closer to your heart? Uh, peak Barry Bonds or 2010 Giants? I would say oh, that's a good question. I'm just trying to. Yeah. Yeah. Peak Barry Bonds. It, it is close to my heart because I'm not a, a working baseball writer. Uh, I am someone who is blogging, someone who is able to enjoy it. Uh, I had season tickets in the bleachers that first season in 2000. And one of my very favorite baseball moments of all time is when Bonds hit his uh, 500th home run in the eighth inning against the Dodgers off Terry Adams. It was a huge like game winning home run and they stopped the game and they had like uh, tributes and, you know, and, and you had a, it's like 10 minutes that the Dodgers had to sit there in a one run game that they'd <laughs> just blown and just go, are you serious? There's all this <laughs> ceremony and pomp and circumstance. And that kind of stuff is, is like in the core of like why I enjoy baseball and the schadenfreude of just, just everything about that. Like that game means almost as much to me as anything that happened in 2010. So very different experiences. Like obviously 2010 was remarkable in in 20 different ways. Uh, But there, there is that part where I was able to just enjoy that a little bit more without thinking when the giants won the world series in 2010, I felt like I had to say something poignant. And I just didn't have it. And I just, I don't even remember what I wrote. It was not poignant. It was my brain trying to process like something that was never supposed to happen. And I whiffed and I kind of like felt bad for the next day. Like I was happy, but I I still felt like I screwed up and nothing like that would have happened uh, in the peak bonds era. You could feel like you screwed up, but that, that probably says something about the way that moment affected you too. You, you like revert to pure fan mode and not writer mode maybe. Yeah, it was it was like a, a very much a transitional moment where I felt this pressure and it wasn't purely organic at the same time. It was like I was over the freaking moon. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm kind of processing that this year. This is the first baseball season in my adult life I've watched where the team I root for won. 
and and it kind of you kind of enter into it in in kind of a unique way. The only the only like separate motivation I can summon is that half my friends because I grew up in Northern California tell me that it was a fake championship because it was a pandemic. <laughs> so I still got that, I guess. Yeah, no, I wrote about that after uh, after it happened. That is just the silliest thing. They had to play an extra postseason series. Uh, it's it's and it's not as if they just squeaked in through the grace of the sixth wild card or the hell was going on last year. They like lost like 19 games all year or whatever it was, you know, between the regular season and the postseason. It was the most like dominant team I've ever seen. And yeah, OK, so there was 102 games they didn't play. Uh, I yeah no that was a there was no asterisk on that. As I as I let you go, I want to talk about the um, thing you're mani- you've manifested a Giants playoff um, appearance by buying Wilco tickets that'll happen in yes. October. Yes, yes. Tell yes. me about that. Uh, I have not seen Wilco live, and I'm someone who sees pretty much anyone I want to live. I just I go to their concert. It's not hard. You buy the tickets and you go. Um, Wilco has been one of my favorite bands since they released Being There when I was in college. Uh, I think it was 96, 97. It, it, it was like my band. None of my friends liked them. It was just, this is just for me. And then I ended up uh, marrying my wife. And when I'm going through her CDs, like on on our first date, basically there's a Wilco CD. And it's like, Oh my God, you like Wilco. Yeah. And so like, that's, mm-hmm. it's like one of our bonds and we've never seen them. And it's always just, Oh, there's a wedding. Oh, I'll catch them next time. Oh, you know, the 2012 giants won the division. You have to write it up on your stupid blog. Uh, I'll catch them next time. I'll sell the tickets. Uh, you know, you are sick with stomach flu. Oh, whoopsie doodle. I'll catch them next time. It's, <laughs> it's a joke. It is decades of me just not getting to see Wilco. Uh, to the point where I bought very good seats um, in the the front row of a very nice theater that I love. And uh, I was just so excited. And oh, there's a literal pandemic. Um, So now that that's been rescheduled to the middle of October, what would be the NLCS this year? There's no way the Giants aren't in the NLCS. Don't know who it's going to be against, but I'm not (laughs) thinking I'm going to see Wilco because why would I? Oh, my God. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, so as we go, the we're we're talking about a pitch that came in spring of 2004. Uh, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot came out in 2002, and they're about to put out a Ghost Is Born like about mm. two months later. What's the best Wilco album? The, the, ooh, that is a good one. What's your favorite Wilco album? Yeah, my favorite is Being There, um, just because it was back in the day this is before napster this is you had to have the cd and i had a pretty good size cd collection at the same time your collection is finite and you that that leads to you just playing the same albums over and over and over uh, i would take a greyhound bus from ashland oregon down to the bay area when i had to come home and it was a nasty greyhound bus and i would have to i would curate the 30 cd's that i would have for the 12 hours there and the 12 hours back. And so you build attachments with these certain albums, uh, like Liz Fair, Whip Smart. Uh, I know everyone would prefer Exile and Guyville, but to me, Whip Smart's the one I had. And that's the one I listened to over and over and over. So like, that's my album. Uh, so Wilco is being there. That's just, it's my album. I think they've done better stuff, but nothing gets those feels like being there for me. Hundred percent. There's, there's no. I mean, when you encounter a certain piece of music, it has just as much to do with the music itself. Sometimes, as long as it's 
good, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. It's just, you know, I, I have a lot of those albums where it's, uh, listen, you might have your favorite Miles Davis. This is mine. This is the one I listen to every night. And, and you know, so. Cool. Um, where can people find your writing, your podcasting, find you online, anywhere? It is uh, just all at The Athletic. I write about the Giants. I'll do an occasional national uh, power rankings or some sort of national feature. Uh, but for the most part, it's The Giants at The Athletic. Um, my podcasts are The Athletic. I have Bags and Brisby, which is Giants-centric. I have Baseball Barista, which, which is Hunter Pence. And it's just all wherever you get podcasts. I think if you put uh, uh, my name in there, it'll, it'll pop up. You can share a Twitter handle or anything like that if you'd like. At Grant Brisby. So just B-R-I-S-B-E-E. Awesome. Well, I loved talking to you, Grant. This is fun. Yeah. Thanks Thanks for having me. I, I love the subject and I was happy to talk about it. Rate the show. Review the show. Tell people about it. Find me on Twitter at Routine Layup. Email me pitch and guest ideas at andthepitchpodcast at gmail.com. See you next week. Hey,